There are two passages for today's scripture reading. Um, the first one is in Isaiah 7, 13 through 17. Please stand when you have turned there. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Um, we will now be in Matthew 1, 20 through 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, two scriptures for us today. Uh, as you can no doubt tell, the second one is a quotation from the first one. And the second one has some loaded language in it, like this prophecy is now fulfilled in these words. Uh, this is to fulfill what the prophet has spoken. And it may surprise you to hear this, it may not. Uh, there might be few texts in the Old Testament more debated in terms of their original meaning and use and their New Testament use than the words we just read. Now, if you are a normal English Bible reader, um, many of the English translations of Isaiah will, uh, will render the word which is hotly disputed in this text uh, differently than how many Hebrew translations might desire it to be rendered. We're going to get into all of those details, but there's two texts before us. We're going to start in the first and we'll end in the second only after we've covered the necessary details from the first text, which is in Isaiah. Um, but before we get into it, uh, I have a scenario or a question to put before you. Say you're a believer, if you, are, if you count yourself to be a Christian, imagine this. Someone who you've shared the gospel with before, or someone who you've wanted to share the gospel with, or someone who you know that no, in your life that also knows that you're a Christian, comes up to you and says, do you believe in the virgin birth? How long do you pause before you answer that question? Or how do you answer that question? We live in a Western world. We live in a, a Western culture. Uh, we live in a very scientific culture. And so to ask the question, do you believe in a virgin birth? And to answer it in the affirmative, yes, you're a Christian, uh, is, is equivalent or paramount to someone saying, uh, do you believe that the earth is flat? And you saying, uh, yes, I think so. You'll get looks. You'll get strange looks because uh, the modern Western atheistic naturalistic thinker thinks that those two ideas are just about as preposterous. That the earth being flat has been disproven by science and that virgins giving birth also disproven by science is a preposterous idea to say that that could be true. And so, something Christians have done, especially in the last hundred years or so, is try to slowly distance themselves, inch by inch, from the virgin birth, 
and from its necessity for the, the centrality of Christian belief. I'm going to try to argue in our time together tonight that the virgin birth is not only essential to the Christian faith, but also it's, it's not quite as insane of an idea as many today would have us believe. If you're a Christian, I want you to walk away with the confidence that the virgin birth is not something you should be embarrassed about. There are many doctrines that we Christians believe that would cause the world to blush. The virgin birth is one of them. The resurrection of the dead is also one of them. The eternal life and a glorified body is also one of them. I mean, name any doctrine that's core to the Christian faith, a triune God, a God who created the world as we know it. These are all ideas that would make most people blush to say them out loud. And as Christians, there is no reason for shame or doubt or even hesitation when you're asked about these kinds of questions. And so there's no time more fitting than the Advent season to reflect on not just the beauty of the virgin birth, but also uh, why, we, why we even believe in a virgin birth to begin with. And we'll get not just to the, that glorious end product, the beauty of it, uh, but we have to kind of go through some details. If you think about it like this, if you are baking chocolate chip cookies and you want to produce the best end product cookie that you, that you can, I don't know anything about this, by the way. I'm told, I am told that it is possible to bake a good chocolate chip cookie. If, if you, need, if you were, wanted to get that good end product, you need to be obsessed on the front end with some of those details. What is the ratio of flour to sugar to butter? Uh, how long do you let the dough rest before you bake it? Uh, in what size do you bake it? How long do you bake it in the oven? What temperature do you bake it at? All of those details are important, but they're not important for their own sake. Uh, you don't measure the amount of flour so that you can eat flour. You measure the amount of flour so you can combine it with the right amount of salt and sugar and all the rest so that you get the end product that, you, that you're going for. And uh, just like some Christians, I think, are embarrassed by the virgin birth, other, other Christians, probably more so would describe those of us in this room, maybe you're not embarrassed by the virgin birth, but m maybe you're thinking, I know that the virgin birth is something to believe in, just like I know I measure out this much flour when I'm baking a cookie, but I don't know what the point of that is. I don't know what the, what the goal of that is. So we're gonna try to accomplish those two things. Establishing that the details do in fact matter, but also that they matter for the purpose of getting to the right end product and the right uh, practical theology on the ground for us to believe. Try to accomplish both of those things. Um, so to do that, let's get into the, the details a little bit. So we're gonna spend about 15 minutes just putting our nose into the text of Isaiah. You've been forewarned, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go there. And then we're going to connect that to the New Testament. And the payoff will be that we'll spend about 15 minutes at the end of uh, our time together uh, just talking about how this is relevant and practical. So all of the, let's say, application, all of that stuff that you think is, how is this relevant to me? I'm saving that to the end, just like you have to wait until the whole baking process is done before you can enjoy that good chocolate chip cookie. Okay, so go to Isaiah. I know you guys were kind of turning back and forth in the scripture reading. Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the specific verse, verse 14, and I'll reread it just to bring it fresh to your mind. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, depending on what English translation you have in front of you, yours might not say virgin. Uh, your English translation might read something like, Behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. This is one of the first details that we are going to look at 
in the, in the prophecy here. But first we have to understand, you know, why are these words being said now at this time? Uh, in, in the context of Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet called to uh, essentially tell the people of Israel that their, that their sin is building up wrath for them, that their, that their ongoing abandonment of God, their apostasy from their Lord, is building up for them this kind of uh, impending wrath, which is coming. Particularly in the context in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, you have not only the southern kingdom Judah, who is the, the kingdom that Isaiah is going to, but also you have a wicked king, one of the most wicked kings, King Ahaz, who is sitting on the throne of the southern kingdom. The problem for Ahaz, that southern king, is that although he is the, the rightful heir to the throne, although he is of the household of David, he is facing threats not only from other Israelites in the northern kingdom, but also from the superpower of that time, or one of them, Syria. Uh, what's, what's happened is the northern Israelite kingdom and Syria have conspired together to dethrone Ahaz and give Ahaz's throne to the king of the northern tribes. And so there's this dispute, and Ahaz is outnumbered, and the armies are actually at the door of the city, pressing in on him, and Ahaz is at a loss. And if Ahaz loses, uh, the house of David is dethroned. It's a really big deal in the Old Testament because God promised to David that his household and his lineage and his kingdom would be preserved. So that's the problem on the ground. In fact, if you look at, uh, for example, verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 7, uh, Yahweh says to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Jerusalem, your son, or Jerusalem, your son, and at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. So, Ahaz, you should not be scared of these two kingdoms, these two nations. Why? Verse 5, because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramallah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in its midst. Well, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. One of the kingdoms opposing them will be broken. Verse 9, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramallah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So he says to Ahaz, they're impending, they look like a threat, they look like they're going to overthrow you. Do not fear, they will not. This plot, this conspiracy, will come to nothing. And Ahaz obviously doubts these words because in verse 10, Yahweh speaks to Ahaz through Isaiah and says, ask of Yahweh your God and let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ask for a sign. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put Yahweh to the test. So Ahaz is, is offered a sign that what God has just said, that this plot will come to nothing, but that that is in fact true, a sign pointing to that reality. He says, no, I will not ask for a sign. Uh, I'm not going to put God to the test. That sounds super pious, except that in the background, Ahaz has been pretty wicked up to this point. And so he's basically saying, like, I don't need God to get out of this situation. I'm not going to ask God for help. 
And so uh, when he says that, uh, he gets that, that word that was read the scripture today, that the Lord himself will give you a sign. You didn't ask for one. God's giving you one anyway. And there is the prophecy. The, so this sign is supposed to serve as a confirmation to King Ahaz and to the house of David and to the kingdom of Judah that God will in fact deliver them from these two kingdoms. So we have this uh, context on the ground. Okay? And the sign is that there will be this virgin who will conceive and bear a son. The son's name will be called Emmanuel. And before this child is old enough, to, uh, but he will eat curds and honey. And before he's of a certain maturity, the two kings and the lands and their two kingdoms will be deserted and destroyed. So before this child is of a certain age, those two kingdoms imposing upon Israel, they will be abandoned. And they will be abandoned because there's another kingdom, not Syria, which is one of those that's in league with uh, the northern kingdom, but a kingdom called Assyria, different kingdom, is going to come and wipe out both the northern kingdom and the Syrians to deliver Judah. So God is going to take an, a hostile nation, the Assyrians, and he's going to use them to save Judah from their impending destruction. And on that day, Assyria will act as God's agent of deliverance for Judah. And so Judah will be spared, Ahaz will be spared, and the kingdom will go on. And then, in the very next chapter, chapter 8, that child is born. Chapter 8, verse 3, And I, this is Isaiah, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and she bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Marshalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So before the boy is of a certain age, this Marshal al-Hashbaz, the problem of the two kingdoms threatening Judah will have been taken care of. And so, uh, there's the prophecy. Now, uh, you might be saying, well, if, if this is all taken place and completed, uh, in predicted in chapter 7, co consummated in chapter 8, isn't it strange that we read in Matthew that when Matthew speaks of the virgin birth of Christ, he says this is to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah wrote. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a tough question, and the one that we are going to turn to now. So, one point of dispute, one big point of dispute between Matthew's quotation and Isaiah's use of this text is that Matthew uses the term virgin, and there's a debate whether or not Isaiah actually uses the term virgin. So let's turn there first. So that verse 14, the virgin shall conceive, the, the way most Jewish translations or most even modern English translations would render that, possibly you have one in front of you, it will say the young woman shall conceive. That the prophecy in Isaiah has nothing to do with a virgin. It has to do with a young woman of marriageable age who will conceive and bear a son. And the sign isn't actually that the son is born. The sign is actually that before the son is of a certain age, these two kingdoms will have been destroyed. That's the sign, that before this child reaches a certain age, those kingdoms will be dealt with. That's a serious contention, and uh, we, can then have, we have to ask a serious question. How is Matthew legitimate in using the term virgin to refer to the prophecy in Isaiah? Well, it is true that the Hebrew word that's behind this, uh, Alma, 
could be rendered both as virgin or as young woman. And uh, it, it most generally means young woman. Uh, that's the bigger picture context. But if, if, you're, uh, if you're a Hebrew and not an American, most Almas, most young women, are also virgins. In fact, if we don't read the text as though it's a Western text talking to Western people, it's actually normative and expected and even assumed that to speak of a young woman is to also speak of a virgin. It's presumed. That's if we take it in its own historical Hebrew context. So uh, the word does, in fact, mean young woman. It can also very fairly be translated virgin. And so when Matthew quotes it, he's quoting from a Greek translation of this Hebrew text written 200 years before any Christians are on the scene, any, Jesus is there. And that Hebrew translation that Matthew's quoting from, that, that translation of Hebrew scribes into Greek, uses the term that actually exclu- exclusively means virgin, parthenos. And that's without any Christian influence, well, because the Septuagint was written before Christians came around on the scene to influence it. And so it's totally possible and even likely that this term was assumed to mean virgin. Now, in the case of Isaiah's prophecy, this young woman, this virgin, is likely Isaiah's wife, who he then goes into, sleeps with, and bears a child by. And so this child is the sign to Ahaz. And so that's the immediate context. Now, I said uh, we have to get into all those details, and now we're going to have to ask the really hard question, how is it fair that Matthew quotes this, in his text, and uses it to refer to Jesus, saying, this is to fulfill what the prophet has spoken. And behind that question is the question, Does, do Christians really have a foundation for believing or expecting a virgin-born Messiah? And so if you'll turn then to Matthew chapter 1, we'll look at that text. Matthew chapter 1, uh, the quotation starts in verse 23. And you can read that quotation there. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when he says this is to fulfill what has been spoken, uh, verse 21 explains that a little bit. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So how is Matthew right in using this text in reference to Christ? Well, in the, the, the whole context of Isaiah goes something like this. Ahaz, rebellious king, and yet the Davidic king, is facing impending doom, impending destruction. He does not ask for help. He does not on his own seek God and ask for God to deliver him. He simply says, kind of it is what it is. He's kind of scheming in the background to take care of things. And God sends to Ahaz a prophet, Isaiah, who says to him, I will give you a sign that I will deliver you from this situation. Ahaz says, no, I don't want a sign. God says, I'm giving you a sign anyway. And then he gives this prophecy. And that prophecy is completed. God does, in fact, deliver Ahaz. And then, in Isaiah, Isaiah launches into this long discourse, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, culminating in chapter 12, where the people of God are praising him for restoring them from the exile. And along the way, chapter 9 of Isaiah, part of that same continuing uh, prophecy, uh, you have the the famous text, his name shall be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in the, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So Isaiah speaks of a virgin-born child who will act as a sign of God's deliverance of his people. And then a chapter or two later speaks of the ultimate culmination of these promises, God saving his covenant people, and says there will be this one whose kingdom will never end, whose government will never end. It will increase and increase, uh, and it will be everlasting. And then it goes into Isaiah chapter 11 in the same discourse where that one spoken of will be of the sh a shoot of Jesse, who will be anointed by the power of God. He will be anointed by the Spirit of God to establish peace upon the earth. All texts, Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11, which Jewish scholars before the time of Christ and even now would describe as messianic texts, meaning they say these texts speak of a coming Messiah, the Messiah we're expecting. And Christians say, absolutely. And Isaiah doesn't start in Isaiah chapter 9. He started all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7, saying God's faithfulness is working itself out in history by the sign of a child being born, that child being a sign of God's faithfulness to deliver his people from their situation. And the culmination of that deliverance is the Messiah coming and establishing peace. So then Matthew comes on the scene, trying to, trying to establish to a Hebrew audience, a Jewish audience, that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. And he says, hey, remember that time when we had a wicked king on the throne? We weren't seeking for God to save us. We weren't even thinking to ask God for any kind of help. And God says, I will give you a sign. I am moving in your midst. This virgin will conceive. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. And he says, Jesus' birth matches all of that criteria and actually even elevates the criteria because Mary is a virgin through and through, not even before the conception, but even after the conception. So Christ is indeed virgin born. But the purpose of that is not to say that what Isaiah was saying is predicting Jesus' birth. The purpose is to say what God is doing now in Jesus' incarnation is the culmination of what Isaiah expects, which is that God will save his people, not just from the northern kingdom and one local temporal threat, but he will save them from damnation and judgment and wrath and all of the rest, or, as the angel says here, uh, because he will save his people from their sins. And so what Jesus is doing, and how Matthew is using it, is to say, this Jesus is the natural continuation and culmination of God's moving power to save his people, not because they asked for it, but because he is determined to save his people from their sins. He is determined to save his people in spite of the fact that they are too stubborn to ask for saving. So stubborn Ahaz is given a sign because God is determined to save Israel. And in the New Testament, Israel, under Roman occupation, rather than seeking God and asking him for help, the vast majority of them have turned to essentially a works righteousness kind of system of salvation. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the rest are trying to accommodate for and live within the boundaries of Roman control, not repenting of their sins or anything like that, but simply saying, because we are Jewish, we will be saved. And here comes Jesus on the scene, on God's, uh, by, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, to act as a sign to say that God's saving work is now continuing in this virgin-born child who will be the Prince of Peace and who will be the righteous branch.
So the, the text is not a prediction from Isaiah to Matthew, but Matthew is saying, just like God was saving in Isaiah's time, he's still at work even until now. It sounds very detailed. Okay. I said, we're going to get into the weeds so we can, uh, we, we can deal with that. Um, so what I hope you've seen so, so far is that to say that Jesus is virgin born or for, for Matthew to quote Isaiah and say it's a virgin birth is not out of the context of Isaiah's prophecy. And it's not beyond the scope of possibility for a Hebrew author to use the word young woman in reference to a virgin. In fact, uh, the, the thing I didn't mention, but you, is also true, every time Alma is used in the Hebrew Bible, it's explicitly in reference to a young woman who's also a virgin. So yes, it means young woman, and it also, also always means a young woman who is a virgin. And so when Matthew quotes it, he's quoting it totally within the context and fairness of how it can be used. Okay, you might say, that's a very uh, detailed look at the ingredients. What is the payout of believing in the virgin birth? What's the payoff? If, if I say, I believe in the virgin birth, why does that matter? And if you deny the virgin birth, why, why does it matter? So now we have to deal with, why would Matthew even bother including this to make his case? Well, Matthew is not the only New Testament gospel that speaks about a virgin birth. In fact, Luke also emphasizes the importance of the virgin birth. Luke says in chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the child born unto you will be called holy. The purpose of the virgin birth, at least uh, we could say at level 1, layer 1, is so that there is a child born who is without the stain of sin. There is a child born who is without the stain of sin. Ever since the fall, every child born into the human race has been born under the curse, under the fall. And that is not passed through, let's say, DNA or, or, or humanity, so to speak, but it's passed through what is, what is called federal headship or covenantal headship. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 5. Actually, we read from our assurance of pardon from Romans chapter 5, where Paul, speaking about the fact that God is pleased to forgive us and pardon us, goes on to explain how, how this pardon works. It doesn't work by God making you perfectly righteous and then declaring you forgiven. It works by God putting you under a new covenantal head. No longer Adam, but the new Adam, Christ, the, the head of a new humanity. So if you'll do me a favor and flip to Romans chapter 5. We'll be there just briefly to see at least one of these payouts. So just remind you that, that uh, assurance of pardon reading that we had, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is that possible? Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so then death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before there was law given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, meaning the curse of sin was upon the people before God gave them the Mosaic law. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass, you can also trespass as sin, as one sin led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life 
for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that is Adam's disobedience, the many were made to be sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So you have two humanities, Adam and Christ. And Christ is the representative of the new humanity. And he's the representative of new humanity, and that's made possible because he's not born under the curse or under the old humanity. He has no human father. He is born a true human, as, the, as the, uh, being born of a woman uh, tells us, being born of Mary. But the text is clear, both in Matthew and in Luke, he is born by the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, miraculously causing a virgin birth to occur. So that he does not have Adam as his covenantal head, but he is a new Adam or a new covenantal head who has the opportunity to do what Adam could not do. Or another way of thinking about this, you and I, uh, yes, we sin, true, but we also basically from the earliest of our lives have been bent towards sin. We have a sinful direction. So it's not just that we sin and then God deems us to be sinners, that's true, but also we are born under sin and thus have a natural proclivity in the curse to sin. It's why before Christ we, en we enjoy sinning so much. It's not as though we are neutral and we choose sin. It is that we are bent towards sinfulness and therefore choose sin. So how does, how does this cycle get broken? Well, it can only be broken if God creates a new humanity who is truly neutral, so to speak, has a will that is unbound from sin, and then that new human, Christ, fulfills all righteousness, all the righteousness Adam didn't fulfill, and, and, then, and then he chooses to offer that righteousness to others so that they could be covenantally under his authority, under his headship. This is why Christians believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because it is not our works that save us, it is Christ's works which save us, and we are united to him by faith. It is why we, we don't uh, look to the assurance of our salvation internally to see how we're doing. We look to Christ. Hey, buddy. <laughs> we look to Christ and his saving work on our behalf. So Paul makes this clear. Jesus being distinct from Adam or uh, you might say Jesus being virgin born and therefore distinct from Adam is essential to our understanding of how Christians are saved. So, you, so if you're a Christian, how quick should you be to affirm the virgin birth? Well, it's essential to the doctrine of justification, <laughs> how it is that we are saved. It, it is not something that we can just discard without consequence. In fact, to discard the virgin birth is to discard the covenantal salvation. And therefore, you're left with some kind of doctrine of we're saved by Christ essentially spurring us on to righteousness so that we can be righteous and then be saved. But under the covenantal framework, under the federal headship framework, it is Christ's righteousness, which we are covered by, that saves us. Just like it was Adam's sin that we were dead in that was our death before Christ. So there are then two humanities. Uh, and so uh, this, this uh, creates the classic situation. Uh, you've probably heard a gospel presentation like this, 
where you, as a sinner before Christ, are guilty in the court of law. You can kind of imagine it this way. And the judge, uh, all the evidence is against you. You've even pleaded guilty. You are guilty. And the judge, right before announcing a verdict to say, and you will die for your sins, says something like, actually, I will step into your place. I will take the guilty verdict upon myself, and you will go free. And it's been pointed out that seems rather unjust. Because in our legal system, imagine this. Imagine uh, someone is guilty. Uh, They're guilty in every respect. I'm not talking about a situation where someone is guilty and they were really innocent. They're guilty in all respects. And right before being condemned guilty, the judge takes some innocent person who's just sitting in the courtroom and says, this person's going to be condemned in your place, and you get to go free. And we would say, oh, that's rather unjust. This person didn't do the sin. He should not be paying the punishment for that sin. And so this whole situation doesn't, doesn't jive. And that seems to totally refute the argument that Jesus dies in our place, or it's even possible for God to be just and for Jesus to die in our place. But that whole scenario just misses like 60% of the picture of the salvation that we, are, we have in Christ. Because it is not as though God, the judge, takes an innocent bystander and throws him on, guilty, on, on death row and lets a guilty man walk free. He actually takes someone who's a willing participant, Christ, and puts him in our place. And that's still only half the picture. Because Christ takes his righteousness and gives it to the one who is formerly bent on sin. So that now when they walk away, it's not even the same person walking away into freedom. And that's where that whole picture of it's unjust to let a guilty man walk free. Yes, indeed, it is unjust to let a guilty man walk free. But what if that guilty man uh, had a new creation, a new heart, a new bent, totally reformed, totally changed? It's not even the same person walking out of that courtroom. It's a new humanity walking out, one who is now bent towards righteousness, bent towards working out by God's grace the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Well, then it's not unjust at all. That's taken care of the problem and a, a, a life-giving kind of solution. And that's actually the exact point of Paul in Romans 6, is that since we have this choice between Adam and Christ, well, now what we should do is we should die to the old man, die to self, and live with Christ. Because we were formerly slaves to sin, now we shall be slaves to or bent on righteousness. Not because we became reformed overnight, but because Christ has birthed within us a new kind of heart, a new humanity. So Christ's innocence, the virgin birth, is not just essential for us understanding how Christ saves us. It's also for understand, essential for understanding what kind of a human nature do we get as Christians. As Christians, we are not still, we are not like rescued in the future and then still just bent on sin for the rest of our lives, doomed to just continue in sin. The picture of the New Testament is actually that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, which means you might still struggle with sin, but the, the telos or the goal or the movement of the Christian is away from sin, actually a hatred for sin, and a love for holiness and righteousness and obeying God. Not because that's our means of justification, but because that's the result of Christ swapping natures with us so that we can walk in his righteousness. So virgin birth is essential for the sinless nature of Christ, who is our substitute, and also essential for understanding what kind of nature we walk away with 
when we confess faith in Christ, die to self, and follow him. The virgin birth is also super essential for understanding the character of God. And by that I mean, in Isaiah's day, when Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask God for a sign, when Israel is not turning towards God, God says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Or if I could say it this way, I looked up the definition of this word before I decided to say this. God is hell-bent on saving his people from their sins. He was hell-bent on saving Israel from the impending destruction. He was hell-bent on protecting Ahaz from that destruction. Not because Ahaz is a great guy. Ahaz is a super wicked king. And that's good news because he doesn't save you because you're all that great either. He's hell-bent on saving you for his own namesake, for his own righteousness. God is determined to save even us who are too stubborn to ask for his help to be saved. Now that does not mean that we are therefore just to wait until we feel like following God and then confess faith in him. Because the teaching of the New Testament is that therefore we are commanded to repent and believe the gospel so that our faith is living and vibrant, active, and therefore joins us to Christ. So it is not as though we just wait, kick it back, and wait for God to save us. God saves us by means of also giving us faith, which is a saving faith that joins us to him. So we are commanded to believe. And that's actually what you're commanded to do today if you are outside of Christ, to believe in his substitution in your place and also his righteousness working itself out in your life. And there's at least one more piece of the virgin birth which is important or essential for us to walk away with, which is that God's salvation, God's saving work, it works itself out in time and in space. When, the, when we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, we say, we, we're not just saying uh, that that's because that's just how it happened. And just like in Isaiah's prophecy, he's, he's not saying to, uh, to, to Ahaz, you know, God's going to save you at some point. He's saying God's going to save you, and here's a definitive mark of what that salvation looks like. It says to Joseph, uh, the angel says, God is going to save his people from their sins. Here's what it looks like. Mary will conceive and bear a son, and you are to call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Or, if you're sitting here thousands of years after those events have happened, uh, God does not just say, I'm going to pardon you from sin, uh, regardless of where you're at in relation to Christ. God's salvation has worked it out in time and space, such that through Christ is how we are saved. Uh, we do not uh, await some kind of future salvation apart from Christ. We do not await any kind of salvation that happens dis, uh, separated from Christ in any kind of way. There is a way that God has worked out salvation in history, and it is through Jesus Christ, through the virgin-born Son of Mary. And he continues to work out salvation also in space and time, such that for those of us who are Christians, we should expect for fruit to be produced in our lives in coordination with the salvation that God is working out for his people. The, the goal or the, the end point of that Isaiah prophecy, starting in chapter 7 and culminating in chapter 12, is Israel in this kind of glorious splendor with their God and King. And, and it just like it's 
it's, it's glorious. It is glory that is being described. The, the state of uh, sinlessness and enjoyment and fellowship with God. But it's not just like they get snapped into that location from the, the state of apostasy that they're in, and then in the future they're just going to get uh, beamed up. The point is that their salvation is being worked out through the course of history and time, and maybe even more acutely if you're a Christian, it's being worked out in your life, such that if you are Christ, uh, you don't just get to, let's say, wallow in your sin, and then just hope that someday God will decide to rescue you from your sin. Since God, in the past, has rescued you from your sin, you are to walk in the fruit of the Holy Spirit in accordance with that salvation, which is working itself out even in your life. As Paul says, we have been saved and we are being saved by the means of the Holy Spirit producing fruit in our hearts. And that is, those doctrines are so tied together, that's why uh, so often Christians can begin to look internally for justification as opposed to towards Christ. We should never take our eye off of Christ, but we also should not then expect to just continue to struggle with sin to the same degree and to the same severity and of the same kind for the rest of our Christian experience. We should expect of ourselves because of God's grace, growing in holiness. It's not that we expect because we are now better humans, therefore we will live in holiness. We expect this because God has promised it to his people. His salvation is being worked out in space and in time. And so, uh, to, to kind of go back to that, that main point that I was talking about, uh, if someone goes to ask you, do you believe in the virgin birth? On the basis of all of these truths, you should rush to say yes. Don't let them finish the question. Yes, I believe in the virgin birth. And then they might ask you, why are you crazy enough to believe that this is the case? And now you have a wealth of explanation and doctrine and theology behind that. Because the virgin birth is not a stale doctrine that we just defend because we've been told to defend it. It actually has all of these offshoots into the life of the Christian, such that to deny the virgin birth is to cut off huge aspects of our theology at its core. And to affirm the virgin birth is to not just have this truth claim, I believe in a virgin birth, it's to have this whole breadth of theology which is working itself out. So that this is not just a parenthetical citation to the faith, but I think as the early Christians were wise to do, they included it in all the creeds and confessions. We believe in the virgin birth. They'll say that in the same creed where they say we believe in the triune God and Christ being fully divine and, and all the rest and these are all core to the Christian faith. Because if you are a Christian, this is an essential truth for you to affirm, not just to affirm, but to rejoice in. Because the virgin birth is how God has been pleased to save us from our sins. So let's pray. Father, you are our Lord. You are our King. And your character is such that you are pleased to move apart from us to save. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to do so in history past, that your faithfulness has been recorded. And Lord, we ask for faith to believe these promises, that you have saved us by means of Christ's finished work. And Lord, to trust that that salvation is working itself out in time. Lord, I pray as the uh, throes of sin are upon us every week, the temptation towards following after the old dead self is there, that we would be a people casting off the old man and living in the new man in which we are being made. And Lord, I pray that that would never be devoid of you. 
that our eyes would be so fixed upon you that our holiness and our sanctification and our love for you would all be intertwined such that we would identify as your people. And Lord, I pray for the grace to see this. Lord, we know that apart from grace, we have no power, no energy, no strength, no movement of our own. We are reliant on your grace to save. And so Lord, we ask for that grace to save. We pray this in your name. Amen.